We praise you because you are sovereign. Your will prevails over all that oppose it. Through Christ, you brought the world into existence. Through him, you maintain it. And through him, we know that you will restore it. We praise you for sending Christ to reconcile us to yourself through his blood on the cross. We worship you, Lord, because you are sovereign. You chose to call us from death and darkness into light and life, forgiving Christ as a, as a uh, holiness, giving his holiness to cover our sins. We praise you for hearing our prayers, for giving ear to our cries, and for not letting our enemies triumph over us. In Christ's precious name we pray, amen. Our brother Spencer just led us in a prayer of praise. If you're not familiar with that, it's one of the prayers that we pray in this church where we try to take some time and we just focus on who God is and we pray God's attributes back to him. But we also pray and we praise God for what he's done for his people in light of who he is. And uh, there are a lot of things that we could thank God for, that we could praise God for, that he's doing in the life of this church uh, but one of the things that I'm tremendously thankful for, one of the things that I praise God for on a regular basis, is the life and ministry of Will Stevenson. Will Stevenson came to this church before me, and he has been a tremendous blessing to me in the last two years. June, the first week of June was my two-year two mark in this church, and uh, through those two years, Will has been a tremendous blessing to me, and I know to other members of this church. Will desires to be a pastor one day, and he served as an intern in this church, and uh, Lord willing, he will one day be an elder in this church. But in the meantime, we got to train him up. So we've taken a break from preaching through the book of Ephesians so that Will can have three weeks uh, to preach through Psalm 3, Psalm 4, and Psalm 5. So this morning, we're going to continue with that. Will's going to come up and preach Psalm 4 for us this morning, and I know that we're all going to be blessed by it. Brother, I'm so thankful to sit under your ministry this morning. Come on up. Thank you, brother. <coughs> My own. Yes. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, yes, I am incredibly privileged to be here at Sixth Avenue. I'm blessed by the elders who so graciously share their pulpit with me. And my prayer this morning is that it would be of a benefit to you all uh, as we think about God's word together. So please be opening to Psalm chapter 4. Just a quick note I'm a little bit under the weather. And I'm also prone to cry when I preach. So what that means is, is I may have to turn away and blow my nose uh, on a few occasions. So just bear with me in that it's probably going to happen. So Psalm chapter 4, if you would. The book of Psalm is a very diverse book. Whole Psalms can differ from each other in both the subjects that they deal with or the range of emotions. It's very comprehensive of the human experience. In a lot of ways, it's very comprehensive of what the Bible has to say about God to man. But not only that, individual psalms themselves can have a wide range of emotions and content within them. Sometimes I think it's helpful to think about an individual psalm as a buffet. There are all kinds of different foods to choose from. Uh, they're not 
all the same. There's a lot of different smells and tastes and touches as you go through the line. And this psalm is one of those buffet psalms. But unlike a buffet where you might have pizza and sushi beside each other, uh, this psalm is going to be in the same category of food, the same ethnicity, if you will. Uh, So we're going to see that there is overlap in some of the content of the psalms, but not all of it's going to overlap perfectly. There's not necessarily going to be a single theme that, uh, that David was pointing to throughout the entire text. Uh, so, and, and, and that's okay, because uh, psalms, they're not always meant to be line by line, stanza by stanza, connecting with our emotions deeply and personally. You may be in a place where uh, your heart is heavy and you uh, want to lament to the Lord. You may be in a place where you come to a psalm and you want to sing creation hymns and you want to praise God for the beautiful things that he has made all around you. Sometimes you'll come to a song where David is lamenting and giving a prayer of praise and talking about the beauty of creation all in the same text. And I think, again, this is one of those psalms where we're going to see that buffet-style experience. So the goal today is to understand where the ideas do touch, where they do overlap, and we can see some central themes at work, but also just to uh, enjoy individual portions. So we're going to make our plate. Some of it might touch but that's okay. We're not going to heap it all together in a big pile. So, with that in mind, let's read the text. Psalm chapter 4, which I should probably get open so that we can read it together. Just a moment. Psalm chapter 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry. And do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's ask the Lord to help this morning. Holy God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word, that in my weakness you are made strong. Lord, we trust the promise that what you send your word out to, to do will not fail, but it will accomplish everything you sent it out to do. So do that for your people this morning. Would you bless us? Encourage us and exhort us. Do us good. May it bring glory to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as I've already mentioned, because this psalm can jump around a little bit, it's not going to be verse by verse as we walk through the text. So I'm going to give you some, uh, some pointers as to where we're going as we're going, but have your Bible open. Be ready to move around in the text this morning. So point number one is David's prayer. 
Point number two will be David's security. Point number three, David's contentment. Point number four, David's warning. Point number five, David's counsel. Point number one, David's prayer. Verse one reads, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. When David finds himself in trouble, David once again goes to the Lord and prays a prayer of lament. We don't know the historical occasion for the psalm, but it is clear if you look at verse 2, he seems to be lamenting these men, these men who are after his reputation. And they're men with evil desires. He says that they desire to turn his glory into shame, and they do it because they want to serve themselves. But before we get to that, we see that he is lamenting them to God. There's something about his plea. There's something about the way that he leads into this where he's, he is trying to root his calls before the Lord. I can go to you to pray because of this. What I mean is David knows that God answers his prayers. But that's impressive. It should be impressive on us because how can David be so sure that God listens to him when he prays? God is sovereign. He can choose to answer whomever he wants. He can allow anyone into his courts. He can give an audience to anybody. He doesn't have to. The Bible, in fact, is full of examples of prayers and types of prayers and types of people who pray that God does not answer. So I'm indebted to this list from John MacArthur. But listen along as I read. He does not answer the prayer of those who have selfish motives, who cherish evil, who remain in their sins, who offer unworthy sacrifices in the temple, who bear the name of God in vain and wander away from him, who reject the call of wisdom, who refuse to heed God's instruction, who turn a deaf ear to the poor, who are violent, who worship idols, who pray without faith, <coughs> and who mistreat God's people. If we were to boil this down into his essence, I think we could say, basically, God doesn't answer the prayer of sinners. But that poses a pretty big issue, doesn't it? Because if he doesn't answer sinners, then whose prayers does God answer? Well, I think there's a hint in two things that David says here. The first being that he calls God, in verse 1, the God of my righteousness. If you are in Christ, God hears your prayers because you are righteous in him. God of my righteousness is a unique phrase. You're not going to see it anywhere else in the Bible. This is the only place it's found. But what it means is, is that God's people cannot do enough good works. They can't do enough things to be in right standing with God so that he will answer their prayers. Rather, it is something that God works into 
his people. It's not as if God only has energy for the really good people. We're not competing for prime real estate before God so that he'll listen to us. There's not a queue where only the best can get in. But God, if you are in Christ, has given you righteousness. He is the God of your righteousness. He provides it. He maintains it. Therefore, have confidence when you pray, Christian, because you are righteous in Christ. He hears you when you pray. The second clue is briefer, but it's to the point. David says a little further in verse 1 that God answers his prayer graciously. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He's admitting that God is free of his own volition to choose to bend the knee and swoop down and lend his ear to anyone. God, would you be gracious to come listen to my prayer? He doesn't have to. But the thing is, God is gracious. He is kind. And he does do that. So these two realities should shape our prayer. Hear this. God does not have to listen to us but he delights to answer the prayers of the righteous. And if you are in Christ, you are righteous. So when you're in trouble, pray. He hears you. Moving on, notice that David's prayer is not particularly polished or winsome. We saw this last week when we saw a drowning man just crying out to God for help. It's very similar. It's like David's running up to a close friend's and he's still excitable. He's still trying to catch his breath, and he kind of goes into all the qualifications for what he's about to say. It's as if he's saying, listen, God, I need you to do me a big favor. You're always so helpful. I need your help again. I can't pay you or anything, but would you please help? And that's the beautiful thing about our God, brothers and sisters, he does. Isn't it wonderful that God answers our prayers. He doesn't listen begrudgingly, but it says that he breathes it in like an incense. It's sweet to him. He listens even when our words don't come out just right. Not every prayer is an essay in Time New Romans font, size 12, with a staple perfectly at a 45-degree angle. It doesn't always come out that way. But whether we pray an eloquent prayer or otherwise, and whether times are at their highest point or their lowest point, he delights to answer our prayers. If you ever doubt that during the really tough times, take a note from David here as well in verse one and remind yourself of God's past faithfulness. David says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Maybe the Lord hasn't answered every prayer you've prayed. but I bet you could fill up journals testifying to the ones that he has. And if you can't testify with journals full of prayers that have been met, I would just encourage you, brothers and sisters, pray more, and you will. God answers prayers. He loves to. He delights in the righteous. It's true that he will never fail us. If he takes care of the birds of the air, 
and the flowers of the field, which he says that they'll be burned up tomorrow, will he not also take care of you? The Lord knows what you need before you even ask him. When you're in trouble, brothers and sisters, pray to the Lord. This segues, segues us into point number two, David's security. We're gonna be looking primarily at verse eight. Orienting your life around God's past faithfulness, what he's already done for you, and orienting your life around God's future promises, what he says he's going to do for you, if you, if you zone in on that, you are going to have so much security, unimaginable security. When David's in trouble and he prays to God, he can still say in verse eight, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Trusting in God is like being inside a huge fortress. It's got a retractable bridge. It has a, a very thorough moat and is armed to the teeth. Won't you make him your refuge? In verse eight, much like verse five in Psalm chapter three, if you recall, David's confidence leaps off the page because again, in days of trouble, he's talking about going to sleep. His back might be on the hard ground. There's no way that David can put a lock on the mouth of the cave that he's sleeping in and yet he can still lie down in peace and sleep totally secure. And why? Well, we see why, because he attributes his safety to God alone. You alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And so David sleeps soundly, not because he's smug or cocky, but because he knows the one who can protect him. He's confident in a God who keeps promises. David's confidence, then, doesn't reflect his own glory, but instead it reflects the glory of the God that he trusts. When you pray to God and you trust him, it makes God look good. But it's also important, as we saw last week, that this is not primarily about physical safety, but about spiritual safety. God hasn't guaranteed that you will not experience any physical trouble in this life. Money can still get tight. Loved ones still pass away. Depression can still weigh heavily, heavily on us. And Jesus warned us that we would still have persecutions and troubles in this life. But Jesus has guaranteed that he will not lose any of the sheep the Father has given to him. Is that not sweet to your soul? That no matter what trouble you are in, he's not going to lose you. You are safe and secure in the arms of your Savior. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to finish it. So <laughs> sleep easy. This kind of confidence, well, one application is that we would sleep easy. I can think of at least three more. Let's look at those. Number one, being secure in the Lord means that we can be bolder in our interaction with other people. Sometimes doing the right thing comes with consequences. People can say sharp words to us. We can be afraid of physical threat, but not ultimately. The Lord says, don't fear those who can destroy just your body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. 
That's the one you should be afraid of. If there's anyone that you need to be tiptoeing around, it would be God. But I remind you, he's the God of your righteousness. If you are in Christ, your soul is secure. You are saved. So be bold before men. They can't take anything away from you that God is not himself preserving. Number two, we can be more generous. One of the, and I mean financially, one of the main uses of money is protection and risk management. Sometimes money is actually called a security, right? But if you're eternally secure in Christ, you don't need money for that purpose, not ultimately. Confident Christians are freed up to use their money for all kinds of good works, to support all kinds of good ministries and gospel work. And they don't have to look out with, a, with their, their head looking over their shoulder to make sure everything's going to be okay all the time. You're secure in the Lord. You can be generous with your money. Number three, we can be more joyful. All of our present troubles will soon pass away. But that doesn't mean in the meantime life is not still full of sorrow and full of pain. But what makes Christians so strange is that they can experience all the fallen realities of the world just like any other man, but they can still do it with a smile on their face because they have joy in their hearts, an incorruptible joy. Our hearts can be heavy, but we can still smile. If you're secure in the Lord, you have joy. It's this third application of security that I want to take a deeper look at. So moving into point three, let's look at joy and contentment more deeply. Point number three, David's contentment. Looking at verse seven. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and grain abounds. So not only has, Lord, has the Lord given David security, but he has given him joy. We don't go to God just because we need something. God is not just the landlord who shows up to fix the dishwasher and then goes on his own way. No, the Lord is more involved than that. He's more like the man of the house, like David's father. Yes, he provides help whenever you're in a sticky situation, but more than that, even more importantly than that, he provides a meaningful relationship. Man was designed to be in relationship with God and enjoy him forever. But sin has separated man from God. It's twisted his desires away from God and pointed it back on himself. But Christ came and died to take away our sins. Christ came to bring us back into right relationship with God. You were made for God. That's why people who have Jesus and seem to have nothing else can be so content. And that's why people who seem to have it all but don't know Jesus can be so miserable. One successful novelist wrote uh, in response to a question, if you could tell yourself anything when you were younger, what would it have been? And he said, I wish that I had known that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. But brothers and sisters, it's not that way for the Christian. Men can have all the possessions in the world in their arms, 
while their hearts are still empty. But you exist to enjoy God. If you know God through Christ, you can be satisfied. You can be fully and completely content. David says here in the text that the Lord has put more joy in his heart than when their wine and grain abound. For David, the taste of the fellowship with God is better than the taste of wine and grain. He goes to the Lord because he is hungry and thirsty, not for stuff, but for God. And what's so wonderful, Christian, is that when you approach the Lord like that, he obliges you. He will fill you up. He wants to give you more of himself. He doesn't just want to give you wine and grain. He wants you to be in right relationship with him, to be satisfied in him. And that's why David prays this text. David is like a tree that is endlessly enjoying the light of God's face upon him and continually drawing from the stream of God's instruction. David is satisfied in God. And brothers and sisters, anyone in this room, you exist to enjoy God. Now, looking back at point, uh, the last point, uh, on security, we see a connection between security and contentment. This is, this is pretty big. If you've spent any time in the Psalms very much, you've probably noticed that David is obsessed with security. He's obsessed with being safe. But I don't think that that's in and of itself an end. The reason that David is so obsessed with security and being safe in God and taking refuge in him is because if David were to die and be left in Sheol, there would be no more relationship with God. All the praises would stop. All the joy that he has now would end. And he would just continue in nothingness. He can't stomach that reality. He doesn't just want to be safe because he's scared of spears. What David is terrified of is losing the Lord. He doesn't want to lose that relationship with God. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever? David is going to live forever? He can't stop talking about the fact that God will keep him safe forever. And that is the basis of his contentment. Because the Lord will keep him, and because he has come to know the Lord as his deepest satisfaction, these two things meet together in a place where David will get to enjoy the Lord forever. That's contentment. He knows that reality now, that the beauty of my relationship with God will never end. That where the securities of God continue, my joy in the Lord will continue. He loves the Lord, and he will be with him and worship him forever. I wonder if we feel that same contentment in our life. The wicked certainly do not. They are not concerned with joy in God. They love wine. They love grain. They have broken desires that lead them into sin. And that brings us to point number four. David's warning. This is my most comprehensive point. We'll, we'll spend some time here, so stay tuned in. David's warning, verses two and three. 
O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But I know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Verse 1 was a prayer of David to the Lord. But now in verse 2, we see a shift in audience. He says, O men. Something to note here. David, after warming himself by the fire of prayer, turns his attention to men. In our own lives, we would do well to follow the same example. Before we go to the battlefield with men, we need to spend time with God in our prayer closets. If you struggle with the fear of man, or if you struggle with being too harsh with them, take note of this practice. Going to the Lord in prayer before you go to men affects our confidence and our humility. When we observe the awesomeness of God and his total ability to accomplish all of his purposes, we are confident that he will not fail. We are confident that he will accomplish what he means to accomplish. And when we realize that every good thing that we have comes from God as a direct result of his graciousness and his mercy and his free gift, then we're humbled. We don't go to men with our chest puffed up, but we are, have our heads bowed down before the Lord. And this is important because this confidence and humility meet in such a way that we will have confidence instead of cowering before men. I don't know about you, I'm tired of cowering before men. But it also gives you a humility, a humility that will keep you from acting ungraciously towards them. I can think of too many times where I've said a sharp word that came out the wrong way because my chest was puffed up, my head was puffed up with knowledge but not love. So confidence and humility are found before God in prayer, and then we turn our attention to men and address them. The men David addresses here are the same men who are only concerned with wine and grain, back in verse 7. They are slandering his reputation, and they are doing it because they love vain words and seek after lies. That's kind of a strange phrase, but to boil it down to its essence, it just means this. They love worthless things and they are desiring to have something that they cannot have. Because of that, it means they are willing to harm David and anyone who might be in their way as they chase these vain desires. This verse could be referring to Absalom and Saul. This men here uh, in the Hebrew carries um, a meaning that could also mean great men or very, uh, men of, of awesome stature. Uh, but we can't know for sure. But men like that, it's very clear. We can look at the history of the Bible and see that what these men really wanted, men like Saul and Absalom, was the throne of David. But of course, that's a problem because the throne of David doesn't belong to Saul and Absalom. It belongs to David. That's who God gave it to. But that's the nature of sinful flesh, isn't it? Sinful flesh doesn't pause and consider its motives Rather, it just responds to desire. When your stomach says you're hungry, you go eat. When your mind tells you you're bored, you have to open Facebook. It's not always bad, but sometimes it is. 
becomes especially dangerous whenever our desires are impeded in any way. Whenever we have a scratch that we can't itch, whenever we have a desire and someone has something that we want for ourselves or something that we want to get but we can't have, well, men have been known to kill and cheat and lie and steal. And men who haven't done that have thought it in their hearts. This desire that we have can lead us into violence, into enmity with other people. In the case of these men, their sinful desires had led them into enmity against God's people, specifically David. The book of James tells us, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's as if the natural man is like a dog on a leash. His master is his desire, and it pulls him around everywhere. And eventually, the conclusion will be that that master will lead you right off the cliff to your death. It's the sinful nature of man to chase after worldly desires at the expense of other people. That's one of the reasons God doesn't answer their prayers. If we jump ahead to verse 6, we see that these same men are are actually praying to God to help them in their foolish enterprise. Just imagine Saul praying to God, Oh Lord, give me the throne. Oh Lord, won't you show me some good? Won't you lift the light of your face upon me? But no, God ignores David. He's not going to discard his anointed and grant the prayers of the wicked over against the prayers of the righteous. Saul isn't checking his desires against God's word. He's just being pulled around like a dog on a leash. And so Saul's prayers, in a way, it's like putting nickels into a vending machine that only takes quarters. He's not going to have the throne. You're going to have to choose a different course of action. But they can't see past it. Wicked men want grain in their barns, and they want wine in their vats, And they want a throne at their back. This should be not only sobering for the unrighteous, but this should be very sobering for professing Christians too. Think about it. You can claim Christ and pray your heart out to him to show you some good, while at the same time not giving two rips about God and the light of the glory of his face. There are Christians all around this world Millions and millions of them who do not care about God, but who only love him because of the things they think they can get from him. Don't let that be you. If you love this world and the stuff in it more than God, then tremble at these words from the Holy Scriptures. The Apostle John warns us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, and wine, and grain, and a throne, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We hear this word from the Apostle Paul what he says about the enemies of God. Their end is destruction, 
Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Think about what drives you. Where are your desires leading you? It makes a world of difference. Think about it. For the Christian, the life is shaped by different desires. We're more interested in delighting in God and the world to come. We say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. David didn't team up with God because he wanted the throne. David was just a man after God's own heart. And what followed was God's ultimate purposes for his life. His main ambition was to love God's instruction, to obey him, to enjoy him forever. That's what David wants. That's not to say that there's anything wrong with the physical world, but we need the right perspective. As Allison read for us, seek first the kingdom of God and all other things will be added to you. Kingdom of God and his righteousness and all other things will be added to you. If you're going to God to get things rather than God, you're going to end up with neither. C.S. Lewis is helpful in this. Does this sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters. Even in your social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas, if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without even noticing it. This principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death and you will find eternal life. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Ironically, these men's attempt to have everything will leave them with nothing. Even worse, they're running over David in a pursuit of nothing. That's foolishness. Don't do that. There are consequences for godlessness and selfishness. Think about it. If they would love God's anointed, submit to his rule, then they would uh, be in line with God's plan for Israel. Their prayers would be transformed. David's glory would be magnified. And these men would share in David's success. They would find a refuge in him. And they would be content in God like David is. But they don't want to. These men, they want to squeeze David's glory down to a pulp. They want to lap up the juices for themselves. But what they don't realize is that they look like foolish beasts when they do that. And what they think is sweet to them, what they think is bringing them glory and goodness to their life, it's a poison. It's going to kill them. They're in danger with what they're doing. But if, if you oppose God, you will lose your life. 
Think about what happened to these men David, or against David, Absalom and Saul. They didn't make it. They did not survive against God's anointed. You cannot oppose God and, and get these desires that you have. It's a pipe dream. It's a pipe dream that's going to kill you. But if you would just lose your life and submit it to God, you would gain everything. Verse 3 gives us further insight into the serious peril that these men are in because of their twisted desires. I've already said that it's very dangerous to love worthless things and to hate God's people. But why is that? Well, one reason David gives here in verse 3 God says he has set apart the godly for himself. He hears when they pray to him. You belong to God. Imagine trying to snatch away someone else's child. You better be ready for a fight. Like it's not, it's not going to be unopposed. You're a child of God. And the wicked want to rip you from the arms of God and, and use you for their own gain. Well, then you're going to be in a fight with God. And God doesn't lose fights. That's foolish. That's dangerous. We belong to God. He hears when I pray. Be careful. That's what David's saying. God has set us apart, meaning he has sovereignly elected his people to be in relationship with him forever, that they might glorify his name on the earth now, and in the new heavens and the new earth to come forever. Nothing is going to keep God from accomplishing that purpose. It will happen for God's people. What this means is that David has the ear of God 24-7. He has the ear of the one who control the outcome of all things. So when David prays for deliverance, he gets David, or he gets, sorry, deliverance. If David wants to get relief, then he gets relief. When the purposes of God and the prayers of his people are aligned, the enemies of God better watch out. So, it may not happen in that very moment. But it, may, it may even seem that the wicked are going to get away with this. We know this in David's own story. It seems like they're going to take over the throne and David's going to be left out to die or that they'll kill him themselves. But that's not what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to bear out in your own life. But if you belong to him, the enemy will not ultimately win. God will accomplish every purpose I just mentioned. He will have you in the new heavens and new earth with him forever. The road there will look different for many of us. But God will avenge all of those whom he has set apart for himself. Every drop of blood, every little bit of suffering, whether it be against their own flesh or against the enemies of God outwardly, will be paid back. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Be afraid then if you are not in Christ. David is saying to these men, I hold the horn of battle in my hand and God is just over that ridge. You better be careful. That's why it says in Psalms chapter two, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. But as Christians, we should pray for our enemies. 
and do them good. So that may be bouncing around in your head right now. What does it mean that God's going to punish the wicked, that I'm supposed to love my enemy and do him good? <clears throat> There's no contradiction between being very confident that God will judge our enemies and also loving them very generously. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, not us. So we can learn from David on this point. Look at the way David handles this situation. Instead of calling down the wrath of God on their heads, he has compassion. We're going to see in a moment that he pleads with them. Here in this verse, he is addressing them, oh men, saying it right to their face. And he's like chiding them. It's as if he's, he has this disciplining tone to his voice. How long will you keep wasting your time on worthless desires? How long will you resist God's will? Don't you know that you're in danger? That compulsion by David, we should understand that as compassion. That's good. Let's look at that more in point five, my final point, David's counsel. <clears throat> Verse four and five, this is what David tells these men. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Don't just shake your head at the ungodly and then give yourself a pat on the back for doing your, your duty as a Christian. Instead, what David does is he sees these men wandering into a busy street and he's running out there to push them out of harm's way. That's the sort of posture that we need to adopt here. Remember, brothers and sisters, that you once were slaves to sin that you were totally blind to the goodness of God and didn't care about his will either. And you were willing to, in red and tooth and claw like the rest of nature, fight for what you wanted. But God has shown you grace. Won't you, like David, look these men in the eyes and tell them you're in danger? Won't you have compassion on them and tell them these twisted desires are gonna kill you? And there's more joy and more contentment that's real. And it's going to last forever. And I don't want you to not know that. I don't want you to experience the outcome of these worthless desires. Tell them, you've been reconciled to God. And if you've been reconciled to God, you've received the ministry of reconciliation. So go tell them. And that's what I want to do right now. If you are here today and you do not know Christ, I, like David, am telling you, slow down and think. Ponder in your hearts on your beds. And be silent. Imagine the outcome, what's, what's going to happen. In verse 4, he says, be angry and do not sin. There's a range of meaning to that word. And to get the point across quickly without explaining it, tremble at your sin. Tremble at your situation. And stop. <laughs> Give it up. Turn around. You need to consider your wrong-headed desires and forsake sin. Don't keep getting this backwards. Too often we sin and sin 
and sin and don't tremble at all. We're not looking in the right direction. We're being pulled around on that leash and we're looking side to side. But I'm telling you, think about it. You need to look up. He sees you. He knows your heart. He knows if you only love yourself and you're selfish and don't care about God. The outcome of your sin will lead you to hell. The just destination of anyone who opposes God and is unrighteous. But this bad news, if you'll believe this bad news and tremble, I want you to meet the good news of the gospel and receive it for yourself. Sin has made us enemies with God. We were all born into that condition. And because of that, hell exists. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. He came and lived a perfect life because he in himself had perfect desires. He always wanted to do what made the Father happy. He loves to obey the Lord. In Jesus, like David, evil men smeared his reputation. They mocked him. They hated him. They wanted to get rid of him because they were interested in pursuing other goals than whatever he was talking about. And so they took the sinless lamb of God and they nailed him to the cross and they killed him. And Jesus could have cried. He could have cried out for rescue. He could have blown that horn and God could have come over that ridge and judged all of these men who were unrighteously killing him. He didn't deserve anything that was happening to him and God would have delighted to answer that prayer. But instead, he wrestled with God, the Father. He wrestled with him in, uh, in the garden. If this cup could be taken from me, take it from me. But no, he submitted himself to the will of the Father all the way to the very end. And he died on that cross. God did not rescue him. The beauty of this is that he died a death on the cross that he didn't deserve in the place of you and me who did deserve to die on that cross for our sins. If you will put your trust in Christ who lived this perfect life and who was a sacrifice for you, if you will turn from your sins and trust in him, you'll be saved. The wrath of God will not fall on your head. He will give you new desires and you will know the contentment and the joy of the Lord. And you will be delighted to submit to him and obey his words. His word will be sweet to you. You'll drink it up like the tree planted by streams of water. And you'll delight in God's anointed king and the glory of God in his son, Jesus Christ. As you behold that glory in his face, you'll never grow weary of it. You'll never stop delighting in it. And he'll never stop getting glory because of it. That's a better deal. That's a better deal than chasing the vain, useless things of this world. And it's free. Receive it by faith. And you'll be saved. 
now as Christians, we live our lives for God, not for ourselves. Lambs and bulls were offered as a sacrifice in the Old Testament, but Christ became a sacrifice in our place. And now we live our lives as a living sacrifice, joyfully and gladly. David says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. If you'll put your trust in the Lord and be saved, now you get to walk in the delight of obedience. Every day you get to walk up and choose to obey the Lord. You put your life on the altar and you give it to him and he's gonna fill you with joy as you walk as a living sacrifice. That's what David wants these men to do. Would you do the same? Heed David's counsel. Tremble at your sin. Ponder in your own hearts the outcome of it. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. So brothers and sisters, we've covered a lot. And my hope is that we would lament like David. Excuse me. That we would lament like David. That we would trust in the Lord who can make us content, who can give us joy. That we would be confident that God hears our prayers because we are righteous in Christ. That we would sleep easy knowing that we are secure in him. And that that security would cause us to live our lives unselfishly for others. That we would give ourselves for them. That we would be confident and humble towards the loss. That we wouldn't fear men, but that we would tell them the truth and do so in such a way that's not overly sharp and unnecessarily uh, offensive. Warn others of the danger of opposing God and the outcome of their situation and counsel them in the way of salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is rich in mercy. He has loved us all very deeply. And so would we, like David, put these things into practice. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful. I pray, Lord, that you would answer this prayer. That you would build up your people. That they would produce good fruit. And that fruit would show people the glory of God. And others would be saved. And that all of this would be done so that you would be glorified. Would you satisfy your people this week and moving forward? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.